There's this misconception with um, March for Our Lives that we're coming for people's guns, and that just could not be less true. Our goal is to take guns out of the hands of people who will use that weapon to cause harm to others. I don't think that's a really divisive thing to say. I'm Evan Smith, the CEO of the Texas Tribune, and you're listening to Conversations with the Texas Tribune a rebroadcast of the Tribune's extended sit-downs with the most interesting, influential, and iconic figures in politics and public policy. This week, the consequences of gun violence, school shootings, church shootings, random and senseless acts of cold-blooded murder in public and private places, all have come to dominate the headlines far too much today. To put this reality in perspective, the award-winning journalist Pamela Koloff of ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine sat down with four good souls who've seen tragedy up close. This heart-wrenching discussion took place before a capacity crowd at the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. It was recorded live at Central Presbyterian Church in Austin on Saturday, September 29th, 2018. Conversations with the Texas Tribune is presented by Walmart. As the state's largest private employer with nearly 170,000 Texas associates, Walmart was proud to sponsor the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. At the heart of Walmart's culture is a commitment to serving the needs of customers and communities they call home. Learn more about Walmart's impact in Texas at corporate.walmart.com. And by the Texas Tech University System, a problem-solving institution that produces leaders who act on bold initiatives to improve lives. More at texastech.edu. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Pamela Koloff. I'm a senior reporter for ProPublica and a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'd like to welcome you to the eighth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to our talk today, The Consequences of Gun Violence. This discussion will last 60 minutes and will include a 15 to 20 minute Q&A. I want to introduce our panelists, uh, beginning with Pastor Frank Pomeroy. Uh, Mr. Pomeroy has served as pastor of First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs since 2002. Last year, the church was the site of a shooting that claimed the lives of 26 people, including his 14-year-old daughter, Annabelle. Uh, Beside him, we have Nicole Hockley, the managing director of Sandy Hook Promise. She founded the nonprofit after her six-year-old son, Dylan, was killed in 2012 in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. We have Chris Grady, uh, who's a graduate of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. He's a survivor of the 2018 Parkland School shooting and is actively involved in the March for Our Lives movement. And beside me, we have Susanna Grasha Hupp, who represented Texas House District 54 from 1997 to 2007. She's a survivor of the 1991 Luby's shooting in Killeen, Texas, which claimed the lives of 23 people, including both of her parents. I'm deeply, deeply honored to be on the stage with them today. Hope you can welcome them. Thank you. Uh, Before we begin, if y'all can silence your phones, and for those of you who want to tweet about our discussion, the hashtag is TribFest18. I thought I would begin uh, with Pastor Pomeroy. 
Uh, you're in a unique position because you not only had to deal with your own personal grief after this event happened, but you had to help guide your church family and your community as well. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what uh, the aftermath of this has been like and, and how you're doing and how your community's doing. I would say the aftermath has been a, a learning experience as far as all the different types of people that you have to interact with thereafter. From those who some call the truther movement who say it never happened, who are interjecting alternate realities that, that you have to deal with until uh, the, the, the survivors themselves, some of which the grief scale for each individual I've had to learn is completely different. And even to this day, some are early, such my wife is just not doing real well still, where others of us are at the other end of dealing with things. So really when dealing with the aftermath, I would set, say that it's just a matter of, of individually seeking the hope. You have to have hope in why you're still here. And as a community, we are still hoping uh, in, in the Lord and one another coming together and building together and strengthening together. I am blessed to, to live in a community of uh, primarily farmers and ranchers, but they, they prior, this event does not define us. It is a part of who we are now but we were an entity and a body prior to. Now we are a more closely engaged and interacting uh, body thereafter, lifting one another, strengthening one another, and just focusing on the future and how we're gonna get through this, how we're gonna build through this, and how we're gonna to continue to give God glory through this. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, Nicole, I wanted to talk to you about your decision, uh, or, I mean, all of this was thrust upon all of you, but. You hit a point, I think, where you turned your rage and grief into action. And I wanted to ask you, I'm sure that was a process, um, when it was that you began to realize that you had to do something with all of the things you were feeling in the aftermath of losing your son? Yeah, well, I, for me, it was very fast. Uh, I think that's just part of my DNA. Everyone deals with grief very differently and has different journeys. And I've always been one of those people that can't sit still, um, that needs to take action. So I, uh, I started talking about change one week after um, Dylan's death at his funeral, talking about like I had no idea what the change was needed, what it was, I couldn't define it, but I knew something had to happen. And that's why one month after the shooting I launched Sandy Hook Promise. And I'll be very honest, we had no idea what we were doing when we started. Uh, and we started down a certain path and then became very educated and learned a lot about the causes of gun violence, the barriers to preventing gun violence, and how do you create social change. So that's the journey I've been on the last five and a half years to just have an impact, save someone else's life because I couldn't save my son. Thank you. And I want to get back to what y'all are doing with Sandy Hook Promise in a moment. Um, I'm going to jump to Susanna and then come back to Chris. Uh, Susanna, your response to what you went through was eventually to run for public office. And I'm wondering, especially at this time when it feels like our political system is breaking or broken, um, if you can talk about that decision and why it was so important to do that, what you hope to do 
uh, by seeking office, and you were quite effective once you were there. Thank you. Um, well, I think she, she pegged it pretty well. You're, you, there are a couple of different kinds of people. I think there are people that kind of sit back and, and it takes longer for them to grieve, and then there are those of us who get angry, and you have to do something with that anger. You know, you either, you either do something or, or go crazy. Um, and I didn't want to run for office. I always thought that would be my brother's job. Um, but my, I came from a politically astute family, and I began to have people asking me to run for office. They were hoping that my feelings about the Second Amendment, which I vocalized, um, reflected some of my feelings about the rest of the Constitution. And so when it got to the a point where we felt like we could financially do it, which those of you that are Texas, you know that Texas representatives don't get paid squat. Okay? So, you know, you have to be able to step away from work to be able to do that business. So uh, when we felt like we were in a position to do that, I ran and, and but you know this, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all about guns. I mean, everybody knew where I stood on the Second Amendment, so right. it was about other stuff. And, and was, was doing that cathartic in its own way, this is for both of you, did it help feel like you were um, making something of that loss, yeah. making meaning out of something that was so incomprehensible? Oh, yeah. We, we had always, um, Mark Barden and I, who's my, my business partner and co-leader, we've always said we don't want to be seen as victims. And we don't, we don't want everyone, when they think of Sandy Hook, we don't want everyone to just think about tragedy. We want think, people to think about the transformation that came afterwards, which is what we're trying to help deliver. It's the perfect lead-in to talk to Chris about what you're doing. Uh, you became politically engaged following the Parkland shooting. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how your involvement in March for Our Lives and the Never Again movement um, both how you came to that and then how it sort of rejects the idea of incremental political change and is trying to disrupt politics as usual. Well, as far as how I got involved uh, the next day after the shooting was definitely one of like the worst days. I was just sitting in my bed staring at the ceiling because I didn't know what to do. Everything felt wrong. And uh, later, later that day, I got a call from my friend Cameron Kasky. He told me to go to a, a protest in front of a courthouse the next day. That was in Fort Lauderdale. So I went and a uh, bunch of us met there. That's where uh, Emma Gonzalez gave her We Call BS speech. And then we all went back to Cameron's after, and that was the birth of the movement. Uh, I, remember, <laughs> I don't think I left his house for like a, a straight week after that. I didn't, I didn't go home. We were, we were just working. and. Um, as far as your uh, other question is concerned, um, yeah, uh, jumping right into it was important. I, I do believe incremental change. Um, we knew nothing. We were never going to, you know, change any policies, you know, drastically. But you know, these incremental change changes are important. Like right after uh, the shooting, we lobbied in Tallahassee, and a uh, little uh, after that, Governor Scott signed it into law that. He raised the age from 18 to 21, banned bump stocks, introduced red flag laws. It took, I mean, he had ample opportunity to, to do it after Pulse. It took him, it took another mass shooting for him to finally, uh, in him caving to public pressure, for him to finally, you know, do something about it. But, you know, if that's what it, if it saves lives and if that's what it had to take, then, you know, so be it. What lessons did you learn from that about the importance of 
um, personal action and people getting involved and getting engaged and especially young people getting involved? Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. It, it, you can't you can't complain if you don't if you don't do anything about it. You can't just sit back and moan all day. You you have to get out. And even if it's just voting, even if it, if the only thing you do is voting, that is the most important thing you could possibly do as an American. It is your civic duty to do it. And I think a lot of people take that for, for granted. I mean, it's understandable, uh, especially you know in this climate. But um, in order to change that, you need people out there voting, especially the youth. Only about 6% of the youth vote. And in midterms elections, they, they, they don't show up at all. And so our main goal is now is to have the largest youth turnout uh, for the midterms, which really, like, <laughs> Like the bar's pretty low, so mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're we're hoping we can we can hit the mark. Okay, uh, Pastor Palmer, I'm curious if if this had I mean one of the things that's unusual about what you all went through is you both have this you know the most searing event that any of us can possibly imagine that then is very quickly politicized by by people on on all sides of this debate. Um, have you seen, uh, has there been any sort of movement toward political action among people in your community, or are you still focused sort of locally? You talked about building the new church and rebuilding the community. Immediately thereafter, there was people who came into the community who tried to politicize, and the media was, uh, no offense to you and your colleagues, however, the media tended to uh, try to expound upon things that did not exist within our community, I would say. As far as the polit political actions taking place, it would be more along the lines of defending the rights that were already there. Uh, I, I tend to, to, you know, there's a quote I tend to use sometimes by Thomas Jefferson, I'd prefer to live in a dangerous freedom than a peaceful slavery. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we tend to uh, believe that that true protection, if you look at the statistics, comes from carrying the Second Amendment and protecting one another and looking out for one another. So I think it was rather odd to many of the media and political elites that came into the area that when they tried to blanket the community, even many extending far out that had nothing to do with the church and or the, the circumstances to be said, no, this, this is not something we want to do. This is not, we did not find anyone who wanted to pursue uh, limiting the Second Amendment or anything of that nature. So the po political faction, for that reason, I think Sutherland Springs fell out of the limelight right. very quickly right. because we refused to be politicized. Right. Um, Nicole, I was really interested in uh, the work you're doing uh, through your nonprofit and the way in which you're trying to reframe the debate. And what interested me is you're not talking about gun control. You're not talking about gun ownership. You're talking about something very different. You're talking about identifying at-risk behavior. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your decision to uh, sort of shift away from what we think of as maybe the traditional path that you all would have followed and, and how you implement that. Sure. Well, when we, um, when we launched Sandy Hook Promise, we did jump straight into the policy debate. You know, we lobbied hard for background checks. Um, you know, I got to know the corridors of D.C. incredibly well. And when that failed, that's when we said, we're, we're, we're tackling this issue in the wrong way. 
Um, there is, this is too polarizing, this is too much of a divisive fight. You mention the word gun and immediately people stop listening to each other mm -hmm. and start fighting. And we don't want to fight, we just want to win, we just want to save lives. That is the only objective here. So we took a total big back step and said, you know what? This country's not ready for this conversation. There's not enough people that are engaged in this. There's not enough people that are willing to step forward because they think it's just a fight. And it's a, this endless tug of war that's not going to go anywhere. So we studied social change. We said, you know, as a country, we have had difficult issues and have found the common ground. You know, everything from marriage equality back to civil rights. So what are the levers you need to pull to engage that change? And programs and education and grassroots voice are three very critical levers to pull. And you can't, you can't effectively, in my belief, in my opinion, you can't effectively enact policy or political change until you have behavioral change and the pulse of the nation changes. So that's why we focus on let's, let's take the gun out of the conversation and focus on how do we ensure that we're getting help for someone long before they pick up a weapon to hurt themselves or someone else, sure. and, and not deal with the imminent danger, but deal with upstream violence prevention. Can you give me an example of how that would work? Like, and I know you have entire classes about this, so it may be hard to boil down, but just a, a general idea of what you're telling people to look for or how that works in real sure. life. Sure, we go to middle schools and high schools in particular around the country because that's where a lot of these at-risk behaviors start to manifest. And we teach uh, administrators and teachers, we teach parents and we teach the students, how do you recognize at-risk signs? How do you recognize someone who is completely withdrawn and chronically socially isolated? How do you recognize someone who's unable to regulate their emotions and their anger? How do you take seriously when a, when a subtle threat is made and realize that's not something to ignore, that's not someone wanting drama or attention, that's someone who's crying out for help and there's something going on in that kid's life that you need to investigate. And then how do you close the loop? How do you ensure that when people do come forward and say something's wrong here, that it's not ignored? that it's fully case managed because every threat, every at-risk behavior, whether it's bullying, eating disorders, cutting, suicide, homicide, that is a child that needs help and we have a responsibility to get that help for them. And, and is the idea akin to, um, you know, when, when many of us were growing up, you could uh, smoke anywhere, including on airplanes, and smoking was, you know, many people did that. Now um, it's become, somewhat unusual, yeah. and we've made in a generation this huge shift in our thinking about that. And we've also learned how to identify other issues, which you've talked about, like signs of a stroke, signs of a heart attack. Is, this, is there a parallel there that we, could, we think we can't change behaviors or that we can't raise people's awareness about what to look for? Oh, we can't. This is um, absolutely doable. Uh, and you mentioned smoking, recycling's another great example, and that came from students, kids, teaching their parents what to do. Um, I think about designated driver. There is no policy called designated driver. It is a behavioral change that certainly people of my generation, we learned to do that now you wouldn't think about drinking and driving. There's always the DD. So, and that, that in itself, that behavioral change, that education, that has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. That's what we're working to do with our Know the Signs programs. Good deal. And uh, Chris, Thank I think you. what y'all are working toward is a bit different, not that it conflicts with that, but you are talking on a legislative basis about limits 
um, as far as guns. And I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, what are sort of the most important priorities there and why those are the most important priorities for the group of folks you're working with. Well, I definitely, it does start with, you know, the mental aspect, mental health aspect of it. Um, this country doesn't put nearly enough money into mental health programs as it should, and it's showing, obviously. But, um, I'm so sorry, I blanked on your question. No, no, just uh, in, in looking at the legislation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> um, but our, I, there's this misconception with, um, March for Our Lives that we're coming for people's guns, right. and that just could not be less true. Our goal is to take guns out of the hands of people who will use that weapon to cause harm to others. I don't think that's a really divisive thing to say. Um, uh, we're not trying to take away guns from law-abiding citizens. Um, you know, I read that you keep a firearm in your purse. More power to you. I, I completely support that. but. Um, as far as something like uh, bump stocks we're pushing, I, President Trump uh, did promise to outlaw bump stocks about seven months ago. S still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> um, uh, I, mostly what we're pushing for is background checks, red flag laws, um, extreme risk protection orders. Uh, I think we have to start there before um, we start, you know, nitpicking which guns we should take away. Uh -huh. Thank you. Um, and then, Susanna, you've written about this uh, in a book that I'm hoping you'll talk a little bit about. Can you tell us your perspective on all of this, sort of where you come down, and just give us a sense of, of the book itself and what you say there? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, well, first of all, I, I'd like to make a comment about what she's doing. What little I know about it is brilliant because I think we all, when we were going through school and maybe now in your workplace, you, you know that, that one person, that if you heard about them doing something like this, it wouldn't come as a complete shock to you. But most of us, particularly I think in middle school and high school, even though you know that one person is having an issue, you don't know what to do with that. So if I understand correctly, she's giving them a path to take. So now as a student, if I've identified that this, kid, this kid's got a problem, it gives me action steps to take, yes. which I think is brilliant. We haven't really had that up till now, and I think that's going to make a difference, although in the long run it's always hard to prove that negative. We don't know what kind of a difference, but hopefully ripple effect. Um, I wrote the book because, uh, and I'm not Ernest Hemingway, um, but I wrote the book because there was a lot of stuff, kind of like the pastor was talking about here. I, you know, you get misquoted, you get, uh, the story gets twisted, the things you say get twisted. And I had two boys that are just a little bit older than he is. And I wanted them, I wanted to be able to put down what I perceived as my story and my thoughts. Um, and it's not, the book is not full of statistics. Everybody's done all that. It's my story as it relates to guns and what my belief systems are. It, I wrote it so that it would be a quick, easy read. And uh, I wrote it so that you can give it to your girlfriend who doesn't like guns. Because we're girls. We don't like things that make loud noises and kill Bambi. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I'm not a gun person, even though people think I am. Mm -hmm. But... I wanted people to understand a different viewpoint than what they were hearing all the time with the media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, I think that goes to, uh, well, before, before I ask you follow-up about that, Nicole, one other thing. Um, as far as what people can do, what is actionable, um, yes, we definitely can all think of people we've been worried about over the years. But what, as private citizens, can we do? What, what power do we have? Well, first, I am going to support Chris in terms of you need to vote. Um, <laughs> that's, that is uh, a responsibility that we all have, and we should lean into that and do that. In terms of where you believe or, or think that someone is displaying at-risk behaviors and needs help, uh, for kids, we tell them, you know, talk to a trusted adult or use something like an anonymous reporting system, which is something we provide for free across the country as well, so that a school team or local law enforcement can deal with that tip and, and, and take care of that child. It's also about um, practicing inclusivity. It sounds so simple, but sometimes some of these um, people that display at-risk behaviors that lead to violence, it's because they don't feel seen or noticed or cared about in any way, shape, or form. And we don't really know necessarily what's going on in their home life that's leading to this as well. So the simple act of starting with hello, reaching out, practicing inclusivity, that can be hard and awkward sometimes, but you never know what impact that's going to have on the next choices someone makes if they feel that they are part of community. So it's, it's simple acts, and then there's action tips in terms of reporting these tips, taking it seriously, not saying, oh, not just retweeting or liking or ignoring, but saying, okay, something's not quite right here. I'm not asking kids to diagnose a problem. I'm not even asking teachers to diagnose a problem. Give it to the people who can correctly identify what the problem is. Yeah. Only because you're asking, you know, about the legislative side and whatnot. And in the case of, you know, in the case of my shooter, he, uh, you know, he he wasn't bullied. He was the bully. Um, and yeah, he he harassed a lot of people, especially girls. Everyone, and he was. Uh, students reported him. So many. He's been red flagged so many times, and, and nothing ever happened, which is why we uh, did lobby for laws such as raising the age, red flag laws. Um, yeah, because it's not always black and white. It's not always oh, just walk up to them and make them feel inclusive. It's not always like that. And look at the in the case of the Las Vegas shooter, sixty-something-year-old man had no red flag laws, and you're gonna and you can't really say he was bullied into doing it. So. Yeah, it's it's a really complicated issue, and it has a lot of layers. There's yeah, of something course. in there. Um, you know, you just mentioned something that I think is really important, and something that I teach my boys. I mean, we can talk about mental health issues, and I think some people are reachable. I think some people are helpable, and we might prevent them from doing this. But I also think, and I, I think it's appropriate to talk about it in a church. I teach my boys that that evil exists. And there are people like the guy, the shooter in my case, there really weren't any red flags particularly there. Uh, he didn't have any history to speak of. Um, I think some people are, are evil. And you can look at that in a religious way or not, I don't care. But that's why I want my ability to the best of my ability, and it's not a, it's not a guarantee, it just changes the odds for me to be able to protect myself and my friends and my parishioners uh, just let me change the odds, that's all. And can we, I don't want to, I, I very deliberately am not asking y'all about the day of these events, but maybe we can just talk briefly about 
um, be, from your personal experience why that's so important, how you were deprived of the right to defend your family. Um, can we talk about that just briefly for some context? Yes, um, again, I wasn't raised in a house with guns. I'm not a hunter, my parents weren't hunters. But uh, I had begun carrying a gun for self-protection because I was a single female out in a rural area, thought if I broke down on a road, I wanted to be able to protect myself. But at that time in the state of Texas, we didn't have license to carry or concealed carry or anything else. And so uh, that particular day, I was with my parents at a local restaurant, and uh, this bad man drove his truck through the window and, and started executing people. I mean, he wasn't spraying bullets. He was walking from one person to the other and executing people. And at that time, it was the largest mass shooting in, in the United States. It was 23 people. And, and this isn't something I'm making up now. You can go back and look at the newspapers the next day at some of my quotes. I was, I was really angry. And this may sound odd to you, but I wasn't angry at the guy that did it because to me, that was somebody who was sick in the head. You don't be mad at a rabid dog. You take it behind the barn and you kill it, but you don't be mad at it. But I was mad as hell at my legislators because I honestly felt like they had legislated me out of the right to protect myself and my family. My gun was 100 yards away in my car, completely useless to me. And there were half a dozen other people in that restaurant that their guns were out in their car. We were like fish in a barrel, and I can't get across to you how incredibly frustrating that is. You can't go up against a guy with a gun with a butter knife. So, yeah, there's that anger again. Uh, That's okay. I'm, I'm wondering, going back to identifying people who are troubled and who may uh, pose a threat, and as we said, some people, it, there aren't warning signs or obvious warning signs. As a pastor, I'm wondering how you handle that. If there's someone troubled within your community or if someone comes to talk to you about things that they're wrestling with, um, how do you as a pastor handle that? Well, I would, uh, I would say that my sister here, sorry, okay. uh, is very, uh, I, I like what she says, you have to be engaged. Morally and socially, you have to reach out and change from a younger level. We're moving further and further away from the the, the family that sits around the dinner table and speaks to one another. Therefore, more and more people are getting their education from TV, from Hollywood, from whatever, except for those morals and values that used to be instilled around that table. So I think the more we engage at a younger level, junior high and high school, like you guys said, the more we engage and teach the morality, the, the sanctity of life, the, the reasoning why we all coalesce and get along and, and build a community and how our government should work and, you know, and converse with one another rather than this either or bias that we hear so often any longer. So the way I deal with that is I try to do just that. I engage. The more I see someone pulled back, the more I see someone who is ostracized for whatever reason. Um, because their, their mom and dad do this and they're latchkey kids, or whether it is an older person who um, uh, the kids have all left the house and now they're by themselves. I just in engage. And the more I am engaged, the more I acknowledge them, the more I bring them into the community, per se, the more they'll feel a part of that community, and the more they will then take care of that community. Now, I'm speaking of a, a community or church and then a more vast community. 
But I think if everyone took that same responsibility to their community, to their neighborhood, or at least even to their own homes, sometimes bring the kids back to the dinner table. The more we put our electronics down and engage on a human to human social way, I think the less we would have the, the evil becoming predominant. But as long as we don't uh, engage, as long as we acquiesce and allow the electronics and, and Hollywood to, to train, then I think the more problems we're going to have. And I, 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 I like what you say about putting those tools and actions out there. I, I tend to think that uh, God has blessed me with the capability of interacting with people. Uh, I'd get along very well with young adults. In fact, prior to the tragedy at our church, I was a very, I was a regular at Texas State. I, I, I like engaging. I, I like debates. You know, I like to, to engage with young adults. And, and I enjoy that. If more adults would go back and engage with the young adults on that level, maybe we'd have less of this, this ostr these people feeling ostracized and having to act out to get the attention. Mm -hmm. Well, and the engagement we've seen through the Parkland students has been really something. It's been amazing. Um, for Nicole and Chris, I'm curious, I think there's sort of a fatalism that's uh, crept into um, many of our mindsets that these mass shootings are going to continue to happen no matter what we do. And uh, I'm wondering how you combat that, if you believe that's true, if you believe we can really stop these. Um, and, and how you respond to people who just say, like, I don't know if any of this is going to make a difference. Well, <clears throat> we have a lot of politicians who say that. And as a result, the United States is number one in gun violence. Um, I, I was about to make a point, but I forgot what I was going to say. That's okay. Oh, yeah. you want to <laughs> sure, I'll jump in. I want to answer to that. Sure. Um, when I, when I hear someone say that's just, the, that's just the cost of living in the USA, um, how can you say that to a parent who's lost a child or a child who's lost parents? Um, this is not normal. Uh, this is not acceptable. And the vast majority of these acts are preventable. So if you decide to disengage, if you decide that you're going to be hopeless about this and just say, there's nothing I can do, then you're part of the problem. Sure. Um, it's that, you know, people talk about, you know, the extreme on this side, the extreme on the other side. I could care less. It's the apathy of the middle Absolutely. that is the problem. Mm -hmm. um, so, and can be that's what we need to fight. And I think you wanted to add something. Yeah, and, and with all due respect to Chris here, I think he was citing an article that came out um, a few years ago that said that, that uh, the United States was number one uh, in mass shootings. And that article was written by a guy named Lankford, and it was not peer-reviewed. And he would never provide any of his resources or any of his statistics or where he got anything. And just recently in the New York Post, um, the Center for, no, the Crime Research, Crime, Re, Crime Prevention Research Organization or something like that, uh, they did a peer-reviewed study that identified 86 countries where there are mass shootings. The United States is 56th, 
or 54th on the list. We come in behind per capita. We come in behind fin, uh, Finland, Norway, all those countries that you say, oh, everything's safe over there. It, it's not true. And what you read about in Langford's article, it's not true. Well, I think we need to allocate money to the CDC so they can properly research gun violence in this country because the NRA has prevented that from happening. Um, this is the hardest question I'm going to ask, and I weighed whether or not to ask it. But um, several of you have been the targets of conspiracy and so-called truther campaigns, and I, I don't want to go into the details of the people who did that or, or, or what they did. But uh, just as a citizen, it has horrified me more than anything that I've read about what y'all have been through. And I, I'm just wondering what we as citizens can do to combat um, that sort of activity. Uh, it, it, I don't know that there's an answer, um, but if, just if you have any, any thoughts about that, I'm eager to hear them. I was utterly amazed at how many of these people exist that live in an alternate reality uh, and, and are forceful and, and violently willing to stand towards their, their idea of what has transpired. As far as what we can do, I truly don't know. The reason I say, I, I, we started dealing the very day, uh, or I'll say the next day we started dealing with these kinds of people. And in my mind, I had it thinking, well, they're looking for some type of, of notoriety. They're looking for some type of prestige. There's, they're, they're, they're just trying to be noticed. There's, they need, you know, they're creating this drama just so that they can get media cameras. However, I, I'm still, just this past week, I had to file a report with the Texas Rangers. Uh, but I had some that actually came and confronted me and telling me my daughter never existed, that my daughter's, that I made all this up. And, and, and it was very difficult when he made it personal about Annabelle, but I was able to just to kind of keep focus on the moment. And I, I, I knew they were baiting. I knew that, the, and in my mind I was thinking, he has to know, she has to know, they have to know that what they say is lunacy, that this is incredibly off the mark. You know, this, this is insane that you, we can't, as my brother over here just said, we can't get our, our political systems to come together to decide what's for lunch, mm -hmm. much less to make this entire conspiracy, including all political factions and people and, right. and keep secrets and all this stuff. But when I had him nose to nose and he was, he was yelling and he was screaming, he was being very profane. I could see in his eyes, he believed what he was saying. At that point, there was a little switch that went off in my head. It's like, there's no working with this. I'm going to go uh, back to what Ms. Uh, Representative Huff said. Uh, there's evil that exists. And I believe I looked into his eyes and he was just gone. The, and, and her as well. Um, so when you ask what we can do, I truly don't have a good answer. I, I just stood, now being a praying man, I just was praying in my head and just stood my ground and wasn't going to allow them to continue to interact and hurt the others there. You know, uh, around my church, people like to say he wasn't always a pastor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't back down very easily. I don't intimidate very easily. Therefore, I was going to stand that ground. And I, and I was able to push him off the property till the, mm -hmm. till the constables and then the sheriffs got there. But the real scary point is when I looked in his eyes, I truly feel as though he believed what he was saying. And when you have people that are just going to go to that extent, 
for an alternate reality, I think it's insane to try to explain insanity. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I don't have an answer. We've tried a a different approach um, for a while. We just were like, ignore it. Don't feed the trolls. Uh, If you don't give them air, their fire doesn't burn. Um, That's hard when you're constantly being attacked. And it was actually, and and Mark, my business partner, and I were constantly like, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. Report to the police, ignore. And it was actually after Parkland. um, And the brilliant way that you guys diffuse things with humor, which is magnificent. um, But that Mark and I said, because we're seeing the attacks continue, the new conspiracy theories. And my surviving son's 14 now. He's in ninth grade. And I teach him as best I can, but I'm nervous about what is he going to experience in college? What, what is he going to experience when I can't protect him? And he started looking on the internet last year. And he became aware of conspiracy theorists himself. And Mark and I said, after Parkland, you're like, all right, it's time to shut this down. And that's why we are, we're engaged in lawsuits right now. Because we said, we're, all right, if that makes us a more, more of a target, whatever. We have to protect our kids. We have to protect future victims. We have a duty to say there is a consequence for taking actions and trying to make money off of conspiracy theories. And we will destroy you. Good for simple. you. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It's truly horrifying that you have to go through that after everything you've been through. Um, I'm curious, as a reporter, uh, I'd like to hear from y'all about responsibly reporting on these events. Uh, On the one hand, the public has a right to know the identity of the shooter. On the other hand, we've seen that um, giving these people attention often fuels the problem. Personally, I think that um, interviewing people over and over again about trauma can be very re-traumatizing and is not helpful. And so I'm wondering, from your perspective, how you think the media can more responsibly report on these events, and, and also what stories are not told that should be told after these events? Well, I think a lot of the times the media will try to dissect the shooter's life and figure out his mindset. and. A lot of sick people want want the same thing, so I, um, no notoriety, really. You, you just can't give them any notoriety. Um, 20 years ago, uh, and, and in fact, I talked about this in my book, 20 years ago when I would be speaking in front of groups and they'd say, what can we do? And this was before this barrage of, of uh, mass shootings. But yeah, I'd say the media should get together and have a pact. I don't want to make a law to make you do this, but the media should get together and have a a pact Mm -hmm. that says, look, I know you've got to do your job. You're going to get the information out there. You're going to say who it was, how old they were, where they came from, the basics. The first day, maybe the second day. And then make a pact that you never use his name again. Mm -hmm. Never. You call him the, the murderer, the shooter, the whatever the heck you want to call him, mm-hmm. but don't ever use his name. And, and come, out, come out vocally so that any potential people out there hear this. Make don't, it known that you're going to do it. Either. That's don't, right. Don't, don't, don't humanize, humanize him. him. Oh, I think right, a lot of media right. tends yes. to do that. We never, we never saw this coming. He seemed like such a nice guy. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and conjecture. That's the problem I had with a lot of the media. They put their own ideas 
and bring it as news. Mm -hmm. And it's so far from the truth. You know, I'm, I'm, I, we are, we've been blessed with Sylvia. I don't know if she's here with the San Antonio Express News, who is, uh, well, there she is. I, she can report the exact same facts and I can read hers and it's, okay, yeah, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. But then we can get someone else, I won't say their name, but they printed the facts with their own conjectures and their own ideologies. And it's not lying, but I taught my kids when you lead people that way, that's lying. Mm -hmm. And if, if the reporters would take the shooter and not make it, uh, conjectures, well, he did this, that, and the other. Because now that's what people are looking for. And in reality, no, we need to engage with him and bring him mm -hmm. this way or something. So if, if we could just get back to honesty, it would be nice. I'm going to make this the last question, then we'll go to, to questions from the audience. Um, I'm curious when, when other mass shootings happen now, what that day is like for y'all. I don't know. I think in one case, I think you went to Parkland perhaps afterward. Um, tell me just both the emotions you feel and then if there's anything you personally do uh, at that time. In the five and a half years uh, since Sandy Hook, um, every uh, mass shooting and loss of life that we hear about hurts. Mm -hmm. School shootings uh, rip the scab off my heart mm -hmm. and make it start all over again. And um, I thought I was ready when Parkland happened uh, to go down and I just wanted to be of service, and hopefully I have been of service to some of the families there. Um, I was not prepared, and I remember the flight home, I was not someone you wanted to sit next to me because I could not stop vomiting. I, the trauma, the PTSD was just horrific uh, for a long time afterwards. Um, and I talk a big game when I'm out talking to other survivors about self-care, and I'm probably the worst person uh, in terms of not doing it. Um, so it's um, school shootings especially, you know, it takes me right back to the phone call saying there's been a shooting at school. It takes me right back to the firehouse finding one son and never finding another. It takes me right back to when my husband had to tell Jake that Dylan was gone. Um, and it makes me relive things in, in Parkland I mean, my God, that, um, that, uh, that brought up memories that I hadn't even realized I'd forgotten, that I had suppressed so much. Um, so it's, uh, it is, it is re-traumatizing every single time. And that again goes to media coverage, because that wall-to-wall -wall media coverage doesn't help survivors. Uh, we're going to go to questions. If you'd like to ask a question, you can line up at the mic. Uh, this is a reminder, a strong reminder, that we're taking questions, not comments. So please ask a question and don't make a speech. My name is Elizabeth Parrish. I'm a reporter with The Facts. Um, we cover Brazoria County. Um, my question is for you. Um, I just wrote an article this week where I interviewed a student at Sweeney High School who brought the Sandy Hook Promise program there. Um, and they just started it uh, this past week. Um, and when I talked to the kid who, who was the one who brought the program uh, to the attention of the superintendents and said, hey, I want to bring this here, he said it was, he started taking action a year ago um, after the Parkland shooting, and then he was inspired to 
go out and find a program like yours after the Santa Fe shooting, mm -hmm. um, which is very, very close by. Um, so my question is, what is the Sandy Hook Promise doing to try to get high schools or middle schools or elementary schools or any school um, to adopt your program or ones like it before something happens either at their school or at a nearby school? Yeah, Sorry. I'm just going to repeat the question. So the, the question is, what are schools doing, or what are y'all doing to get schools to adopt the Sandy Hook Promise uh, curriculum so that we can be proactive about this and people can know about this before there are more shootings? Is that fair? Okay. Um, well, what we're doing is bringing awareness and talking to whether it's conferences, speaking engagements, uh, attorney generals, governors, legislators, superintendents, board of eds about, you know, this is available to you, it's available for free. We never charge for anything that we do. Um, but we need help in spreading that word. You know, we're, we're, we're a nonprofit out of Newtown. We're doing the best we can. We're, we are doing incredibly well. Uh, we've already, until this past week, we were involved in 7,000 schools. This week alone, with the Start With Hello activities, we've had 12,000 schools across the country um, participating. And activity. So we are growing and scaling rapidly, but schools need to be aware that this service is available um, and available for free and available for however they want to implement it. I mean, we studied every single barrier that a school could throw up in terms of academic time, cost, um, classroom engagement, um, sustainability. And we said, this is, you know, this is what we can do, and we will find a way to work with you and even employ people in your district so that the logistics are taken care of, and then sustain it in a club. So um, it's as simple as going to our website and asking, um, and, and we're just, we will go wherever we're needed, because um, we just, like I said before, we just want to have an impact and save lives. Amen. Thank you. And schools are seeking yes, stuff, they are. too. So they that's really helpful. are. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. We really appreciate you taking the time to come out and share your stories. My name is Jamie, and uh, I am a longtime uh, Second Amendment activist along with my parents, but I'm also a very strong advocate for uh, unarmed self-defense, the art of being able to uh, be situationally aware, to take care of yourself in a situation like this one where both the Tribune and the Church uh, prohibit the carrying of a firearm or even a knife. My question for you guys, and Pamela, I appreciate that you're not talking very much about the day of the shooting, is that on the day of an event, um, when you were in a situation where your life was at risk, uh, those individuals had to get to that location. Um, your shooter drove there. I believe you had a, it was another student. Um, yeah. and someone came into your church. Uh, Susanna, you said that um, you can't fight a gunman with a butter knife, and I would at least a little bit disagree because if he's facing away. So what do you wish individuals had done or had tried to do or what do you think somebody might have done to uh, take action in the moment? And I know that nobody can actually identify what they would do in the moment unless they've actually been in the heat, but what can you think of that an individual who is paying attention might have seen or noticed and done at the time? Thank you. Well, the SRO at my school stayed 100 yards back while the shooting was occurring and ordered his other officers to stay back as well while innocent children were getting slaughtered. So, yeah, that could have that helped if he actually did his freaking job. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And I'll tell you that my, my boys, I've 
tortured my boys for years. Every time we're in a restaurant, anytime we're in a theater, uh, okay, close your eyes, and they're going, oh, mom, you know, so tell me where the exits are. How many are there? You know, just stupid things like that, simple things, but, but I want them to know where those, and it's not paranoia, it's just awareness. And I know we've taught, the pastor and I have talked about this, you become much more aware. You could call it PTSD if you want, um, maybe it is, but when I'm in a restaurant and a single guy comes in, he's in a trench coat and it's 75 degrees outside, I'm paying attention to that guy, you know? It's just awareness. But there are situations, and interestingly, it tends to be on, the, there's been a situation on a train and on a subway where people, it was close quarters and they were able to subdue a gunman. But when you have a spread out area, I mean, my dad's a great example. He tried to stop the guy, he ran at him, but when somebody's got a gun and there's space, the guy with the gun has complete control. So that's, I, and listen, I took Krav Maga, I'm all about, you know, situational awareness, and if you can do it, great, but. I think we have to be preemptive as well, because not every situation is the same. Mm -hmm. In ours, mo much of the damage was done through the walls from outside. No one knew what was happening. In fact, they thought firecrackers, some teenagers were popping firecrackers outside. So much of the problem took place before anyone ever saw the gunman per se. Um, so now we have, you know, we have cameras, we have people walking around outside, we have all kinds of security. We got many things we would not have thought of previously. Uh, so it's not always uh, a capability to know where the exits are and who's this, this or that because it may come totally unaware. And I totally agree. Uh, there is a, one of our survivors who is, um, a walking miracle, uh, one point of his PTSD is the fact that he couldn't do anything. He's a man's man. He's, a, he's used to doing things, but there's nothing flesh and blood can do with lead that's being thrown. You know, you're, there's just nothing you, you cannot chase it down. Spare the moment thought. What would you think about a slaw which would require any gun dealer to make sure that anybody who buys a gun is sane and not dangerous and do a back and require a background check by a physician that they are capable of knowing right from wrong. And if they do not do that, and so that you can trace when a gun was a person was shot who sold him that gun and get it at the root and keep people from don't from buying a gun that may be dangerous. So the question, if I'm just going to restate it, is uh, what would you all think of before a gun can be sold, a, a mental health uh, evaluation would be done by a physician and only then, if that person passes it, could that gun be sold? Yes. Is that correct? And okay. And if they don't do it, they're going to jail. And, and, and otherwise, the, the person who sells the gun is liable. Can, can we do that before they vote? Yeah. <laughs> I said, can we do that before they vote? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean can we require test. the background check? Can we require a mental stability check? Can we get them okayed by a mental health professional before we allow them to vote? 
Well, I, we do some pretty bad things when people vote, <laughs> as we've seen in these past elections. This is killing people, yeah. and we need to take extreme measures. Nothing else seems to work. I think there, there are two laws that really are, are very clearly able to answer uh, the gentleman's question, and, and Chris mentioned both of them as well. Background checks, obviously, if we had um, enhanced background checks across the country, that would help. They're not enough because that's a historical view. And that says, at the point of purchase, have you ever been adjudicated mentally ill? Have you, are you a felon? Are you a domestic abuser? So it's a catch for previous activity. What it does not catch is future activity. But the red, the red flag laws, the extreme risk protection orders, that's something that then enables a community to say, there is a person here who is displaying at-risk behaviors, and there is a court, there is, for states that have these laws, there's then a court-appointed process for temporarily removing their access to existing firearms or their ability to purchase more until they are deemed fit. So if they're in a moment of crisis, if they are potentially um, spousal abuse and, and, and they have access to a gun and they're going to do something, or someone who might be intending suicide or homicide, it's a means to protect that person, and it's allowing your family or law enforcement to report that. And that's why all states should have extremist protection orders and background checks, because then you have the historical and you have the current crisis. Um, so there is definitely a way to help. You're not going to catch everything. But, and that's a court process, because you're talking about denying somebody a constitutional right. So you definitely want due process involved there. You don't want to put that uh, in the hands of you know, one bureaucrat in your county or your town that doesn't like you that can strip you of a constitutional right. But so. I also think that gun dealers have a responsibility, and I can't recall which study it is, so I'm going to get the stats totally wrong, so I'm not even going to go there. But in terms of, there are studies, and I think it's the Brady uh, Center that did this, that are around the number of um, gun dealers that actually deliver the highest percentage of illegal guns and guns used in crimes across the country. So there are some further activities that should happen in those gun dealers to ensure that they're actually following best practice. Hi, my name is Sandy. I'm from San Antonio. I'm a grandmother and I'm a mother. And I'm an educator of 36 years. And um, I've listened to what y'all are saying, which makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate your activism, whether I agree with your methods or not. Um, what brought, I just, I just have, uh, been blessed with a granddaughter. I look at some of the, um, her future and um, I see the increasing deaths that happen every day. And so what I've tried to do is what Nicole's and a lot of you suggested. I, I went to the Texas legislature's hearing on red flags laws. I testified as a retired counselor. I mean, the statistics are overwhelming about them saving, especially the, the majority of, of uh, gun deaths here in the United States are suicides. Mm -hmm. And lately, being an educator, I've noticed the suicide rate among teens is going way up. So I testified and I brought my statistics and my literature and gave it to all the legislatures. I attended a, one of the sessions here at the Tribune Festival, heard a lot of diverse points of view. and. What I can't understand is, you know, we had a romaine lettuce scare. 
and you, you know, way on the TV, we had we had all kinds of publications in the in the uh, newspaper. We had it on the TV. Don't go to that store. You can't buy this. We've taken it out. But we lose 97 people a day to gun violence, and yet we we really haven't become as active a society society in our action. I listened to the session on. Um, I think it was uh, the Republican wish list, and one of their priorities is constitutional carry, which means no permit, no registration, no training, everyone gets a gun. And I wanted to ask, someone asked how, uh, what they wanted to do, because we already have some of the most lax gun laws. And I wanted to see if any of you could come up with an explanation, because the Republican uh, Freedom Caucus re representative said, that's an infringement on everyone's right to own. They're infringing on your right not to own a pistol. It's your God-given right. I didn't understand that because, you know, I understand all the other rights you have, you know, why, why can't I do 90 on the freeway? Because there's a law against that. Why can't I uh, print libelous things about you? There's a law against that. I don't have all the freedom of speech I want. I don't have all the freedom of expression I want. There's laws that regulate it, yes. Yet when I see the pro-Second Amendment, and I'm not anti-Second Amendment, it always comes down to that. That's our God-given right. So I was wondering if any of y'all could explain that to me, and secondly, your views on red flag laws. And we've got less than two minutes left, so we're gonna have to give a quick answer to that one. Well, one of the things I would say is we need to recognize and realize uh, we were talking per capita earlier. Here in Austin, the per capita rate of, of gun violence is 3.6 per 100,000. Detroit, with one of the math, has massive gun laws, is 56 point something per capita. I think just taking away the firearms from, and I, I am not, uh, you know, I, I'm, we were talking earlier, I'm an archery person. I like to, I do my own archery. I'm not a big gun enthusiast. However, I do believe that we have, should have the right to protect ourselves. And in, when you look at the statistics of those places where that right is carried out, the murder and gun violence is far lower than those places where the guns have been taken away. Um, we need to be careful when we start stating statistics that we uh, organize them correctly and see where the actual violence is transpiring. Pastor's absolutely right. There's also instances where those cities that have, or areas that have the strictest access laws also have high trafficking incidents. So they're coming from states that have lax laws, uh, and that's a fact. Um, I always have a problem when someone says any part of the Constitution is a God-given right. It, wasn't, it didn't come from God. It came from the legislators. So let's just take that off the table. And I think any policy, you know, administrations change, presidents change, administrations change, um, policies can change as well. And I am not pro or anti-Second Amendment. It's a constitutional right. I do think with rights come responsibilities, and appropriate access is an important part of that. Yes. Thank you so much to our panelists. I'm so sorry we have to wrap things up. Can you please give them a warm round of applause? Thank you. Yes. And that was The Consequences of Gun Violence, 
recorded live at Austin Central Presbyterian Church as part of the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with the Texas Tribune. Visit texastribune.org events for more information about our public interviews. And if you like what you heard on this podcast, please share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Evan Smith. Thank you.